brought to you by Penguin. Well, you can have a great success and still have people telling you that what you did didn't deserve its success. I think certainly my confidence took a knock around the time that my last novel was published, Into the Water was published, because a lot of reviewers didn't like it. Um, so that that leaves you a bit, um, you know, that will batter your confidence a little. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. Each week on the show, we invite an author to open up to us about their writing methods, their struggles, their inspirations, their aspirations. Basically, we want to know their secrets. How do they turn a spark of imagination into the finished novel that we pluck off the shelf? We also ask each interviewee to bring with them a selection of objects that have had an impact on their writing in some way. And on this episode, I look forward to finding out more about the inspirational powers behind a postcard, a lock and key, and a rather tatty jumper. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back to the Penguin Podcast, one of the most globally successful authors of the last decade. Her first thriller, The Girl on the Train, became the fastest selling adult hardcover novel in history. That was six years ago. It went on to sell 23 million copies worldwide. It has been translated into more than 40 languages. And the film, of course, starred Emily Blunt. And it was a box office number one smash on both sides of the Atlantic. Now, to prove it wasn't a fluke, a follow-up novel, Into the Water, was also a global number one bestseller, racking up 20 weeks on the Sunday Times top 10 list. And now she's back with another psychologically unnerving tale of intertwined lives, questionable motives and unreliable memories. Released at the end of this month, a slow fire burning is sure to spread around the world like wildfire, just like its predecessors. So I am delighted to find out more about it with the phenomenal Paula Hawkins. Hi, Paula. Hello, good morning. How many of those books behind you have you read? <laughs> Do you know what? Not that many because those are not all my books. I'm, they're, they're mostly my partners who's much better read than I am. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's always very impressive when you see a ladder going up. That's oh, when yes. you know you have so many books. <laughs> what were you reading when you were a financial journalist? Were you drawn towards fiction then? Yeah, I don't think I read a huge amount of fiction in those days because you have to read so much for work. I mean, just reading the papers and all the reports you get sent and all those kind of things. By the end of the day, the last thing you want to do is open another, you know, something else and start reading. You just want to watch rubbish telly. What I did mostly in those years was personal finance, which is, and everyone rolls their eyes and thinks this is even more dull. So it's mortgages and tax and pensions and the savings and those kind of things. But the thing that is interesting about that is you spend a lot of your time as a journalist talking to people who have um, problems around that area or who've been, you know, who want to invest their money or have got a problem with their mortgage. So you're actually talking about human stories all the time anyway. It sounds like the boring end, but actually if you're in that, that situation and you've got a money problem, it's not dull. <laughs> Do you think that... Your interest in human stories predates you going into that world or by looking at these stories, financial stories, but they are human stories, that that actually piqued your interest? Well, I think I'd always been very interested in storytelling and in people's stories. So I grew up in Zimbabwe. My father is an academic, but he also wrote for, for the newspapers. And we always had journalists coming to stay at the house and coming to visit. 
And they had extraordinary stories to tell about the places they had covered um, and the, the people they had spoken to. So I think I was always interested in that. And that was what originally got me, you know, made me want to become a journalist. And I had romantic ideals of becoming a foreign correspondent, which never came to pass. But then, yes, when you sort of hone those skills, don't you, when you get a job in journalism where you have to observe people and listen to them and draw the draw a story out of them. It's not necessarily something I thought I was terribly good at. I'm much better at just making up stories in my head than I am at getting people to tell me the truth about things. But then where does that interest come from then? Because your books talk so much about experience, memory and the psychology of people, why people do the things that they do, what leads them to do those things. Where does that come from? Because that's being a psychoanalyst. Well, that's being nosy, really, isn't it? That's being sitting <laughs> and looking Curious. at people. <laughs> but I'm always fascinated by how on earth people got to the point that they did, or just sitting, you know, in a more prosaic way, sitting in a in a hotel restaurant, looking at the other people who are there and wondering what they're up to. You know, why is that like attractive young woman with that? older man there who what is their relationship or you know whatever this is a way in which I fill in the blanks this is the way in which I, I make sense of things um I make up a story for people but why did that get darker why did your interest in human beings go from the more romantic side to it to the more darker side of it oh no I think it had always been dark the romantic comedies which I so I wrote four of them under a pseudonym but they weren't really my story. So I was commissioned to do the first one by a publisher who approached my agent, who then approached me. So I never felt right in that space. I'm not a romantic, funny person, sadly. So um, if you read those books, um, terrible things were happening to them all the time. They kept getting darker and darker. They were sort of car accidents and someone was blown up in a bomb. They were just, they were, yeah, they were not light. So I think that the darkness was always there. And, and then you'll ask me where that came from. And I honestly, I don't know. It's just my sensibility. I always liked the darkest fairy tales as a child. I think my mum always had a lot of, she was always telling me terrible stories about, that makes my mum sound like a bad person and she's not, she's lovely. But she, she had quite a dramatic childhood. She grew up on a farm in what was then Rhodesia. It was quite a scary place, I think. Terrible things happened all the time, apparently. Um, so maybe that's where it comes from. Let's get into your first object, which is an engraved silver lock and key. So the, the lock and key is a gift that I was given by my partner as a birthday gift. I keep it on my desk. It has an engraving on it, which says, every saint has a past, every sinner has a future. Now, don't ask me why he gave, why he thought that was appropriate for me, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. But, um, you know, what does you think about what locks represent? It's a lovely gift. They represent permanence and security, also possibly imprisonment, but let's not think about that. Um, he gave this, book, this to me actually before I started writing, before I started writing this book, I mean. But it seemed particularly apposite for this book, because this book is all about how our pasts, come back to haunt us about the decisions we make now and how they're going to affect our futures. It's about basically the tension between forgiveness and revenge, how we choose to cope with our pain and our trauma, which way we go, whether we choose to forgive those who have wronged us or whether we take a different path. So that little engraving on that about saints and sinners seemed particularly 
opposite to me and that has been sitting there on my desk and it is in my head so that is my first object that tension that you speak of that forgiveness and revenge how do you process that when you are trying to understand how that feels do you have to go externally and look at examples where this has happened to try and understand it or is it about you facing that yourself and asking yourself what you'll do a large part of it i think is asking oneself what what one would do in that in a given any given situation and sometimes it's it's almost impossible to imagine because i'm putting people in very extreme situations it's but then of course you also do read you read you know you read other stories you read things in the newspaper you you read first person accounts of people who've been in in extraordinary situations and you you i think borrow from all of those different sources and you have to also you're creating a character so you have to think what would that person do or I mean, character is all about the choices we make, isn't it? So it's sort of almost like a chicken and egg situation. You're you're looking at this person and saying, what would they do in that situation? And what would that make of them? Or is this choice right for that particular character? Where did you begin with Laura? So Laura, who is one of the protagonists of this book, she's a young woman who suffered a terrible set, well, a number of terrible setbacks in her young life. She's constantly sort of firefighting bouncing from one drama to the next. Um, And she came, it was one of those things where somebody told me a story about the daughter of a friend of theirs who'd been in an accident and then had a condition called disinhibition, which meant, which so her behavior was altered. And she sort of had no filter. She would say things, inappropriate things. She would behave sometimes in an inappropriate manner. And it just got me thinking like, what would life be like for a person like that, for a young woman who presents to the world in a certain way. So the world will make judgments about her, but actually what she's presenting is is actually almost like a, a symptom of something that's happened to her. So you're constantly trying to manage how people see you and also manage a condition that you can't control. And it just struck me that that was a really interesting condition and an interesting thing to think about what the world would be like if you lived with something like that, what the world is like for you, how difficult it is for you and how vulnerable you are if you're in that situation. How do you know when you have the characters as three-dimensional? How do you know? I think that you can only feel that, really. I mean, it may come to some degree from feedback from my editor or agent. I think one of the problems I had when I first tried to write fiction before I was published, when I was just writing stories for myself, is that I never showed them to anyone. And as a result, you end up locked inside your own head, not really knowing whether what you've created is working or not. You you hope that it is, but you can't really be sure until somebody else has read the words on the page. That's the, that's the relationship between writer and reader, isn't it? It's an interesting comparison in the music industry where you have A&R and the album is presented to the A&R person, they'll say, well, that's not a single. That should go as a third track on the album, not the second track on the album. But the difference being is that authors always talk in glowing terms about their editors, largely every author I've ever interviewed, whereas artists tend to complain nonstop about their record companies. I'm sure if you caught an author on the day that they got their notes from their editor, they would say some truly terrible things about them. (laughs) (laughs) because there's always a moment of absolute fury (laughs) when you get your notes. Well, for me, anyway. Is there an inverse relationship between 
actually it's not an inverse relationship, it's a direct relationship, a correlation, in fact, between success and confidence. The more success you have, the more confident you are in your writing ability. Well, you would have thought that was a sort of linear correlation, but I don't necessarily think it is because, well, you can have a great success and still have people telling you that what you did didn't deserve its success, which I think is probably what a lot of commercial fiction authors have. Um, just as you can write a book that everybody says is utterly brilliant and it doesn't sell. So I think certainly my confidence took a knock around the time that my last novel was published, Into the Water was published, because there were a number of very critical reviews, you know, quite harsh reviews. Well, harsh. A lot of reviewers didn't like it. Um, so that that leaves you a bit, you know, that will batter your confidence a little. And then you've got to, to work back from that point. Um, I mean, yes, I had very mixed messages on the last book. There were a lot of readers who absolutely loved it and there were a lot of people who didn't. So uh, it depends how you quantify success. It depends how you look at your success and what, what, what does success mean to you? Does success mean squillions of books sold or does it mean that everyone gives you a five-star review? So then what, if you boiled it down to the purest form of validation an author can have, what would that be, Paula? I think there's a sweet spot that some brilliant, brilliant authors hit. And Kate Atkinson springs to my mind. She's an author who gets brilliant critical reception and she sells a ton of books. And that's the point <laughs> which everyone wants. But not very many people get to that. And, you know, that for me would be, yes. I mean, you, you don't, it's a ridiculous thing to say because there are so many people who who take one or the other or take a tiny fraction of what I've been lucky enough to have. So I should stop whining. <laughs> Let's get on to your next object, which is a painting. Now, I work in Salford. I live near ah. Manchester. So <laughs> a painting by L.S. Lowry is particularly relevant to my life. Why is it relevant to yours? Well, I just love this painting. It's a it's um, a, a painting of a woman in a red coat. It's a small painting. She's got her red coat on and her little red hat and her hands deep in her pockets and her head is down and she looks like she's walking into the wind. I just find it a very tender picture. And I thought of her as like Laura when I saw her. She's this woman who is not downhearted, but determined. She's being buffeted by the slings and arrows of the world and she's fighting her way into it. Um, so I've got this uh, on my wall and I look at it a lot and think of Laura, a slightly better dressed version of Laura who wouldn't be wearing a smart red coat and hat. But um, she encapsulates Laura's spirit, I think. How important is it for you that we like your characters or we like them eventually? I don't think you necessarily have to like them either immediately. You probably won't like them immediately, but even eventually. But you do have to be interested enough in them to follow their story. You do have to be compelled by them. I always loved my characters. And I, I remember feeling really quite hurt by how much everyone talked about how what a terrible person Rachel from The Girl on the Train was because I felt quite tender towards Rachel. But she's a, good, she's a very good example that you don't have to like her to want to know what happens and to be compelled by her story and to be, I think sometimes that feeling of being infuriated by someone can be good. You have to just, why, why are they like this? And I think that's the key thing is if you're interested enough to know what on earth brought them to this point, um, then you'll, you'll follow them through the book. 
And that's one of the, the brilliant things about fiction, isn't it? That it's supposed to, well, it, it should make us feel for people that we wouldn't perhaps ordinarily feel for or wouldn't feel for on the face of it or wouldn't feel for at first blush. So it's supposed to be about the enlargement of empathy, I think. Um, people always ask me about how, why my characters are flawed, but people are flawed. Does anyone know any perfect people? We, everyone has baggage and issues and behaves awfully sometimes. So to me, that, that just makes them real. What did you find the most challenging aspect of writing a slow fire burning? It took me a long while to get to the right story for all the characters to, and then to, to knit them together. So there's that wonderful moment at the beginning of a novel where you have an idea or the kernel of an idea or you have a character and it all, everything opens up in front of you and you could go anywhere. And then the tough parts, you know, arrives of deciding which way you're going to go. And is this the right way? Because we could have gone another way. It's just making those decisions and then making sure that everything fits together neatly. Do you relish that challenge or do you find it tortuous? <sighs> oh, it depends on the day. You know, I know I do relish it. I do relish it. There are times at which you just think, oh, this is never going to happen. There are when you're sort of, there's, I think every novelist has this, there's a bit in the middle where you're just like, oh God, this is awful. But then there are days when you're like, yes, yes, yes. I can see it now. It all works. It's wonderful. So you've just got to keep going. There are always moments when I sit at my desk and cry and want to abandon things. Actually cry? Oh, actually cry, yes. Actually sob. Does your partner ever wander in and just see you sobbing at the desk like that and go, are you okay? <laughs> Um, I think he probably just like backs away, backs away quietly and goes and puts on another record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I have a friend who always says, you know, you did this the last time and you did this the time before. So just you, you come out the other side. Um, Do you remember the points at which you cry? Do you, you know, when you think back over the story of a slow fire burning, do you think, OK, there was there was this juncture where I could go no further and it was just draining of me? Yeah, I don't remember exactly when they happened, but I can remember at this point I ripped up, you know, 20,000 words and chucked them. And then it's a bit because that's what, you know, the, what you see on, in the final book is not everything that was written. A lot more was written. People ask me about it why it's taken so long. And I want to say, you should see the piles and piles and piles and piles of pages that were written that didn't actually make it to the final version because it is not for me a, a linear process. I find that always fascinating because obviously I live in the world of radio where you're constantly moving forward. You don't on a radio show go, okay, well, that link was terrible. I'll do it again. Or go, <laughs> I've just spent half an hour interviewing you, for instance, but that wasn't any good. I'm going to have to do that all over again. Like you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. My brain is terrified of what you have to do. So how do you steel yourself to do 20,000 words and then know somewhere maybe around 15,000, this is not working out how you want it to do. And you might have to jettison all of it. Well, for me, your way is far more terrifying because there's, there are no kind of do-overs. It's, you know, that, that's it. You only get one shot. Yeah. That's way worse, yeah. Yeah. if you ask me. But um, I, think, I think you just don't think about it when you go into it. You don't, you hope that that point isn't going to come. You know, and it is hope against expectation because you know that it probably will but I mean this is maybe not be the case for all writers I'm sure there are some writers who don't do this but um I would rather 
tear things up and start again than continue with something which I feel is really wrong or not working. So, Have you always uh, had uh, that lack of creative sentimentality or is it something that you have to learn to jettison any kind of sentimentality about what you've just committed to the page? Oh, that's interesting. I think, yeah, no, I think I, I have always have it, had it. I don't, I'm not precious about what I've written particularly. There'll be parts that I'm very unwilling to sacrifice, but they're, they're usually then you don't have to sacrifice them. If there's something you know in there that's amazing, you keep that. You don't, when I say you rip everything up, you don't, you know, it's not burned forever. I cut characters out of this book at the beginning. And this is in the very early drafts I had written um, there was a wider cast and there are people who got cut just not because I didn't like them, but because they weren't right for the story. They didn't fit. But I, ho I hope I'll write them. They'll come back. The emotion of sobbing at your desk. I won't. Don't worry, I won't keep going on about this. Um, <laughs> are those tears of anger and frustration more than sadness? I think it's frustration and the, I don't know, there's a little bit of fear in there. You know, if this is really not working, then what do I do? I've got to, you know, you're accountable to people. There are people who are waiting for um, for pages. And um, not that that makes it sound like my editors are so terrifying that, you know, they make me cry, which is not true at all. Um, Can fear be a fuel for an author? Oh, definitely. I think actually it's, for me, it's kind of necessary. When I wrote The Girl on the Train, I had certain kinds of fears about where I was going with my life and the fact that I was financially struggling and all those sorts of things. And then obviously those fears went away with once that was a successful book, but then you have a diff different fears. You have the expectation of readers and of critics, as I've talked about, and your publishing house who've put a lot of faith in you. So there's a different set of pressures, but I do think that without any you know, are you, when, you need to be just sort of a bit discomforted, I think, to write or to write the way I do. If I was perfectly happy and comfortable all the time, I don't think I'd be able to write or not write these sorts of things anyway. So in a world where we can go to therapy and have our fears confronted and be taught mechanisms to overcome our fears, that's not going to be useful for you as an author. This is maybe why I've never been to therapy. <laughs> Because you need it. Yeah, you need the fear, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were saying I need the therapy. No, 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 no. Yeah, you need the fear. That's... No, jeez, I've only just met you. Can you imagine how rude that would be? Paula Hawkins, go and have therapy. I've only spent half an hour with you and I can clearly see you need therapy. Um, let's move on to our next object, which is a postcard. Uh, and the postcard has a name. Tell us the title of the postcard and why. The postcard is called White Fence, Port Kent, New York. And it's um, it's just a postcard of a house behind a white fence. And I discovered it in a book. I can't even remember which book. And it represents those scraps that you find in books, which I'm doing all the time, that you, you're, going, you're reading something or you're rereading something and then something will fall out. In the novel, Irene finds it in No Country for Old Men. When she's going through the books that have been well, not bequeathed to her, but left to her. Um, her friend has passed away and she's been given the friend's books and she's going through them to see which ones she's going to keep and which ones she's going to discard. And it's just another, it's, it's another of those aspects of a love affair with books that you do this, I think, if you're a big reader, that you'll go through things and things will fall out for you and they, they're often like, 
they're, they're quite banal things, tickets or lists or what have you, but they're very evocative and they take you somewhere. I remember looking through, it'll have been a time where I was moving books around and I found in The Second Sex by Jermaine Greer, there was a little scrap of paper and my name was written in Arabic. And I remember that was because I went to Morocco as a teenager and a boy taught me how to write my name in Arabic. And it's just those, and I was reading Jermaine Greer because so how pretentious was I? But anyway, the, the point is it's like, they're very evocative, those things. And for Irene, the character in the novel, it's sort of a, a way of continuing a relationship with her friend who has passed away through the book, through the things that she left in the books or things that she wrote in the book. It's one of those things that I love about. And I, I'm, a, I'm a hoarder of little mementos. I don't collect anything particularly apart from books, I suppose. But I do keep notes and postcards and theatre tickets and what have you. And I think it's quite sad, actually, now that everything is on your phone, that we probably won't have that like weird paper trail that we have of our lives. Um, but I, I certainly have boxes and boxes and boxes of things like that, which I will keep forever and every now and again get out. And this is the kind of thing, is that postcard. And I don't even know why I liked it so much, but I do. We're going to take an opportunity now to listen to an extract from the brilliant audiobook of A Slow Fire Burning, where Irene is informed of the death of her neighbour. No one would ever know, not really, what happened. The police said it was an accident, and Irene accepted that, though the whole thing felt wrong to her, too hastily concluded. There had been conflict in Angela's life, plenty of it. She'd argued with her sister, she'd argued with her son, or rather it seemed to Irene that one or other of them had come by to harangue her, leaving her upset, setting her off on a binge. Irene mentioned the arguments, over money, over Daniel, to the police, but they didn't seem interested. Angela was an alcoholic. She drank too much, she fell, she broke her neck. It happens more often than you'd think, the kind policewoman said. But if you think of anything else, anything that might be relevant, she said, handing Irene a card with a telephone number on it, feel free to give me a call. I saw her with a man, Irene said suddenly, just as the policewoman was leaving. Okay, the officer said carefully. And when was this? Irene couldn't say. She couldn't remember. Her mind was a blank. No, not a blank. It was fogged. There were things in there, memories, important ones, only everything was shifting about hazily. She couldn't fix on anything. Two weeks ago, perhaps, she ventured hopefully. The officer pursed her lips. Okay. Can you remember anything else about this man? Could you describe him, or... They were talking out there in the lane, Irene said. Something was wrong. Angela was crying. She was crying? She was. Although... Irene paused, caught between a resistance to disloyalty and an urge to tell the truth. She's quite often tearful when she's had a little too much to drink. She gets melancholic. Right. The officer nodded, smiled. She was ready for the off. You don't remember what this man looked like, do you? Tall, short, fat, thin. Irene shook her head. He was just normal. He was average. He had a dog, she said at last. A little dog, 
black and tan. An Airedale, perhaps. No, an Airedale's bigger, isn't it? Maybe a fox terrier. That was eight weeks ago. First Angela had died, and now her son, too. Irene had no idea whether the police had ever inquired about the man she'd seen outside with Angela. If they did, it came to nothing, because her death was recorded as accidental. Accidents do happen, and they especially happen to drunks. But mother and son, eight weeks apart? In fiction, that would never stand. That was a reading from A Slow Fire Burning, written by Paula Hawkins and narrated by the superb Rosamund Pike. And a link to the audiobook can be found in the programme information of this episode. So, Paula, to your final object, which I believe you've christened the Holy Jumper of Lockdown. Yes, the Holy Jumper of Lockdown, that would be whole with an E-Y rather than just holy as in holy. Um, it's a weird thing, but this is the jumper that I wore pretty much every day of the first lockdown. And it's it's grey, it's from Toast, and it had this little hole in it at the beginning of lockdown, which became larger and larger. So by the end of it, it was more whole than jumper. And when I was going through my things, as I do periodically, throwing things away or put, giving things to charity, and I, I just couldn't bring myself to part with it, which is ludicrous, but it's now sort of stained with toothpaste as well but um it's become like a totemic object for me now that it's going to be hang in the wardrobe next to the cape I wore to the premiere of the girl on the train so I just yeah it, it reminds me of that time which was such an odd time it's I think most of lockdown we can barely remember because it was sort of a weirdly amorphous time without any fixed points in it but that early time when we were all kind of afraid and anxious and we didn't and the world seemed new and then I, I put on my jumper and I wrote every single day and I was really immersed in the book and it was so all-consuming um and it yeah it was when I sort of finished the book and when I got the book right I think so it, it yeah it is it's an it's now become an object that I can't get rid of how unsettled we all feel did that find its way into this book I think there were certain aspects of our general anxiety or things we were thinking about. I have an older character, an eight-year-old woman, Irene, in the book. And this was at the same time where people, some people were talking about how it would be fine to sacrifice the over-80s for the good of the, the general population because, oh, well, they're going to die anyway. And it's that sort of horror at that, at those sorts of ideas that kind of fed in when you're, when you're thinking about a person who's in her 80s and is still vibrant and, and healthy and forward-looking and open and what has things she wants to do in her life. It's, it's horrendous to think about people saying, oh, well, you know, she's had, she's had a good life. We can throw her to the wolves. Um, so there were things, there were certain aspects. I think a lot of the characters in this book are quite lonely. And I think I was very conscious of the loneliness of a lot of people, people who were living alone, who suddenly or found all their support networks taken away from them, all the things they love. The, even if, you know, the things they love are small things like going to church on a Sunday or you know, you know any place of worship or going to the pub in the evening and that's where they chat to people. The fact that those things were suddenly just cut off, that was that... For me, so it wasn't necessarily things that I was suffering with, but things that I was acutely aware that other people were suffering with. I think those things went into the book. 
writing about assumptions and the people's assumptions based on what they see, when you're writing this down, does it help you become a more open-minded person? Because we all see people and make assumptions, don't we? I mean, yesterday I interviewed a woman, for instance, a Muslim woman called Dia Khan, who made a documentary where she was embedded with American neo-Nazis for a year. And she spent time one-on-one having conversations with neo-Nazis. And one of the things she said to me was, I had to strip myself of the assumptions that I had about these people. Well, she is a bigger person than I am. I can tell you that. I think it makes you conscious that you need to question yourself. You always need to be questioning yourself, is what I'm seeing in front of me. I shouldn't necessarily take that at face value, but that is incredibly hard to do when there's, in the moment. I don't think you can expect everybody to be completely understanding of that sort of thing in in the moment. But perhaps where you can think about it a bit more is, for example, online. I'm not on Twitter anymore, for example, but on social media, there you have all the time in the world to consider your response. You don't have to react immediately to people there. You can think about, well, maybe, or maybe just think about, no, maybe that's not worth responding to. Maybe that that isn't worth engaging with. I would suggest if you get a chance to watch that documentary called Meeting the Enemy by Dia Khan. Yes. I mean, it, it won an international Emmy. I mean, it's it's a fascinating documentary. Now, now that I've recommended something to you, I would like you to recommend something to me, which is a book that you've read most recently that you've absolutely loved. What's next to your bed? What's next to my bed at the moment is a book called The Turnout by Megan Abbott, which is just published this month, I think. It's a psychological thriller. It's about ballet dancers. Megan Abbott is an extraordinary writer. She writes sort of noirish books, mostly about young women, often set in particular subcultures. This one happens to be ballet, but she's done cheerleading and all sorts. She's amazing. Um, I've recently read Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, which is a book about somebody suffering from mental illness, which is hilarious, despite it being about a very difficult subject. So I would really recommend that. And I would recommend the, uh, sorry, Real Estate by Deborah Levy, which is the third of her living memoirs, which is a wonderful book about writing and property and interesting things. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Paula, for hanging out with us today. I feel like I've discovered a lot about you. And uh, <laughs> most importantly, you don't need therapy, which is great, because uh, that will save you a lot of money. Now, before we go, don't forget to follow the Penguin podcast, comment, rate, and most of all, share. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Paula, thank you. Um, I guess the obvious question is, what's next? Uh, what's going to have you crying at your keyboard over the next 12 months? <sighs> Oh. Well, that's yet to be decided. I have a couple of characters in my head who are still marching about. I don't have the right story for them yet, but um, I'm hoping to get started in the autumn. I will be weeping soon. 